Father, we thank you for the mercies you've shown us during the last week. I know many of us have been sick, and you brought many of us back to health. We pray for those who are not feeling well right now. Please show them mercy. Bring them back to good health and strength soon. Please give us, Father, the endurance and the mental alertness to benefit from our time together. As always, we ask that your spirit would be our teacher, that he would maintain order among us, that we would encourage each other and be built up, that we might be more effective in following our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. You seem to have a sparse crowd tonight. I hope that's not evidence of the 24-hour flu, but I just had it. Maybe some other folks are having it. There's something going around. Rather unpleasant. Okay. Tonight we are going to move on in our discussion of bibliology and talk about canonization. Some of you had questions about this a little bit earlier, a few classes back. And this is really what we're going to talk about for the entire first hour. The canonization of the Bible. Very important topic. You guys are dull. You're not looking. Look up, Hampton. All right. It's obviously, you notice there's something different here. Canon, the word canon in canonization has only one N. It's a confusing word. Okay, let's get serious. The word canon from, comes from the Greek word for a reed, like a cattail. The Greeks, if they wanted to measure something, would go get a reed and they'd cut it, and they'd use that as a standard. So the modern word canon means a standard. Now, in bibliology, when we use it, the canon is the accepted collection of inspired writings that make up the Bible. We call these the canonical books. Have you heard that term before? Okay, that's where it comes from, the canonical books. Now, we could define this term canonicity like this. Canonicity is that characteristic of the 66 books of the Bible whereby they have passed the, that should say, tests of inspiration and authenticity and are therefore recognized to be God's very word to man. Now, we'll flesh this out in a minute, but one of the key words there is this word recognize. Okay, what we're going to see is that canonicity is not something that men determine. It's something that we <coughs> discover or recognize. This is viewing things from the human side. When the autographs were written, they were already God's word. People may not have recognized it right away, but they were God's word from the very moment that they were produced. So the ancients who went through this process didn't make the books of the Bible canonical. They recognized that they were already canonical. Let's think a little bit more about this, okay? Books are valuable because they're canonical. You know, the 66 books of the Bible, each one of them is something special that's different than any other book in the world outside of the Bible. And books are canonical because they're inspired. 
Again, what does inspired mean? God breathed. Came from the mind of God. Okay? Books are inspired because they come from the mind of God. Now, canonicity comes from God's work in creating Scripture, not man's work in recognizing Scripture. And the point here, again, is that even when some books of the Bible had not yet been recognized as being inspired, they were already part of the canon from God's viewpoint. So God determines canonicity, we only recognize it. Now that leads to the question, how did men recognize canonicity? And I'll warn you, before we look at it, the answer is rather vague. All right? The process of canonization was not a deliberate planned process. It was largely intuitive. In the process, God's people recognized his word in stages as the different books were produced through time. Now let's stop and talk about something we've discussed before. When approximately were the first five books of the Bible written? 1400. Okay, around 1400. 1400 what? BC. BC. Okay, that's 3500 years ago. And the last books of the New Testament were written approximately when? Yeah, around 90, 95 A.D. So that's a time span of 1,500 years. Now, they were written one at a time. Okay? So there was a period of time when there were only five books in the Bible. Now, it wasn't really called the Bible, but it was the beginning of the collection of the books that came from the mind of God. So... We shouldn't really be thinking, you know, that somebody handed somebody a nice printed or even even a loose leaf notebook with all the autographs in it and said, do you think this is or isn't from the mind of God? The books came along one by one and people read them and studied them and as time, time went, they recognized that they were from the word of God. Now, we can look back over the process roughly and discern the kinds of things that people were asking when they said, is this from the mouth of God? And there are four basis, basic texts, tests of canonicity. The test of authenticity, the test of content, the test of quality, and the test of acceptance. Now, the test of authenticity concerns the human author and his position. Who was he? Now, for the Old Testament, the human author would typically be a prophet, a lawgiver, or a leader in Israel. For the New Testament, he would generally be an apostle or a known associate of an apostle. Now, what this would mean in the New Testament is that books whose authors people really weren't sure about would be slower to pass this test. Okay? The book of Hebrews was a book which quite early on almost everybody believed had been written by Paul. But then some folks began to doubt that and because of those doubts it was one of the latter books to be recognized in the New Testament as canonical. Now then there's the question of content. The question is what does the book teach? 
Now, we would expect if a book is part of Scripture, if it really is from the mind of God, it would make a unique contribution. It wouldn't just be a carbon copy of something else we already had, and that it would be doctrinally consistent with other things that had already been revealed in Scripture. Remember that passage we looked at a few weeks ago that said every new teaching about God has to be consistent with what came before it? Remember that? What book was that from? Anybody remember? Deuteronomy, yes. Deuteronomy chapter 13. So when they were looking at books, they would say, does this tell us something we didn't know before? And yet, is it consistent with what we did know before? These things go together. Another way to put it is, does this book show the signs of being true, and does it show the signs of being valuable? Okay? Then there's the test of quality. Does the book show evidence of inspiration in high levels of moral, ethical, and spiritual values? Now, we're going to talk about the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha in a little while. Those are books that never made it into the canon. But books like the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes raise doubts in people's minds. Why do you think Song of Solomon raised doubts in people's minds? It's a very sensual book, isn't it? Now, however you interpret it, and I personally take it quite literally, some folks found it difficult to accept the idea that God would put something so sensual in his word. Now, how about Ecclesiastes? Why would people doubt Ecclesiastes? It's yeah. <laughs> Ecclesiastes, at least in one way of reading it, can seem very depressing. It seems skeptical. It seems cynical. It seems down on life. I don't really think it's any of those things, but it sure looks that way at the first look. Okay, and then finally there's the test of acceptance. Here the issue is the response of the people of God to a particular book. Now for the Old Testament, that would be the Israelites, and for the New Testament, that would be the church. Now obviously, a book which everybody quickly accepted and quickly distributed would be quickly recognized as canonical. Now, some of the canonical books were not quickly accepted, but they eventually were accepted by all. Um, second Peter, the book of Hebrews, second and third John, even the book of Revelation were a little slow in the process of acceptance. Now, this is pretty obvious, but let me just say it. We need to keep in mind that just because a book was old that is, written during the time in which the biblical books were written, or it was written in Hebrew or Greek, or even if it evidenced significant spiritual insight, that did not necessarily make it canonical. There were a lot of books written in the time that the books of Scripture were being written. A lot of them were in Greek and Hebrew. Some of them are actually quite uplifting books, and we'll talk about a few of those, but... They didn't make it through this set of tests and get into the Bible. Okay, let's talk about the canonicity of the Old Testament. Can you read that in the back? Okay. The Old Testament canon was already fixed by the time that Christ came to earth. 
He talked about the law, the prophets, and the writings. It was well established what the Jews considered their scriptures to be. It had 24 books, but those 24 books had the same content as our 39 books. They, some of them were just joined together. Okay. Now, there was a council of the Jews at Jamnia in A.D. 90 that sort of formally recognized the books that were in the Old Testament canon. But this was just a formality. Everybody knew which books were part of the Old Testament canon. I don't really know, but this may have been a reaction against the writing of New Testament scripture by Christians. I'm really not sure. But the timing is kind of interesting, isn't it? Okay, now Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the first century, he cited the same list of Old Testament books that we use today. There's a lot of evidence that that same list was agreed by, agreed on by everybody. Now, the Old Testament is full of statements such as, thus says the Lord, isn't it? And those statements obviously would be, well, any book that said, thus says the Lord, where there was reason to believe that God didn't say it, any such book would quickly be thrown out. People would not put up with that. The Jews were very uh, jealous for the honor of God. Now, let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you know what the Dead Sea Scrolls are? Okay, some of you do. Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a bunch of scrolls that were found in a number of caves in the Judean countryside starting in 1948. Some of them were in jars. Most of them were written on parchment. And they weren't all found at the same time. Over the years, more and more of them have been found. Now, among those scrolls, there is a copy of every single book of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. Now, there is no reason to believe that that book may never be found. It may be out there, and there are duplicates of some. The book of Isaiah is represented in several different scrolls. Okay, But it seems that those scrolls were hidden by Jewish believers at a time when they were afraid that their scriptures were going to be destroyed because there were several efforts in Jewish history by outsiders to just wipe out the Jewish scriptures. Now, the fact that every book of the Old Testament is represented in them and the fact that all those scrolls were produced before the time of Christ is a very strong evidence for the existence of the canon back then. Now, we talked last week about how the New Testament writers spoke of the Old Testament scriptures as inspired. So there's reason to believe, obviously, that they are canonical. Now, here's one last point that's kind of interesting. What is the LXX? Anybody remember that? Okay, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Jewish Old Testament that was made roughly 150 to 200 years before the time of Christ. Okay? And it was not produced all at once. It probably took 50 years to produce it. We're not absolutely sure. In the Septuagint, there are non-canonical books from the Old Testament period. The fact that they are there does not mean that they were considered to be canonical. They were considered to be part of the Jewish literary heritage. 
There are some versions of the Septuagint that don't contain the non-canonical books. Okay? But there is no evidence anywhere that anybody ever considered the non-canonical books that are included in some versions of the Septuagint to be canonical. That was a complicated sentence, wasn't it? The ones that we think don't belong there were never said by anybody to be inspired. Is that clearer? Okay. Any questions? All right, let's talk about the New Testament. All right, we know that the apostles viewed their own writings as inspired. We looked, we looked at all these verses last week, so I don't feel the need to look at them right now unless you want to. Um, all of the New Testament books were cited by the church fathers by A.D. 170, and they were recognized as canonical. Now, A.D. 170 is less than 100 years after the last New Testament book was written. So, pretty quickly, the church at large recognized the books that are in our New Testament today. Now, there was a guy named Marcion. Marcion was a Christian, or at least he professed to be a Christian, but he was very anti-Jewish. He made up his own canon, and he knocked out of the canon basically every book that he did not consider to have been written by Paul. Now, what's interesting about what he did was that he started a debate in the church, and he was declared to be a heretic. The fact that they had debated with him and the fact that they were upset when he said that books that weren't written by Paul weren't canonical is evidence that they were concerned about the issue of what was inspired and what was God's word. Now, there was a council of Carthage in 397 that officially noted the New Testament canonical books that we have today. But please... That's 200 years after A.D. 170 when the church had already recognized the books that we have today. They sort of formalized it. Okay? They rejected no presently recognized books and they included no presently rejected books. All right? Their canon was the same as our canon. Now, a few more comments on the canonization of Scripture. Okay. The early church was interested in the question of canonicity. You may, in some of your reading, run into books where people will say, the people in the early church really weren't interested about the question of inspiration. They really didn't care what was or wasn't the word of God. They just read it. Read it. They just read whatever was handed out, and they didn't care. That really isn't true. Okay? The evidence is that they debated these things and they very uh, firmly defended the books that we consider to be canonical today. Secondly, the canon converged very rapidly. The only books that were accepted late were Hebrews, Hebrews because there was some question as to who wrote it, James because there was some question as to whether it was theologically compatible with the writings of Paul. Second, Peter, because there was great doubt that Peter wrote that. That's a, that's a very interesting issue. 
the question of the authorship of Second Peter. I have absolutely no doubt that he wrote it, but there are some differences of style between the two books, and they may well be accountable for on the hypothesis that Peter used a secretary when he wrote Second Peter, or a different secretary when he wrote Second Peter than when he wrote First Peter. Now, Second and Third John were little tiny books. I think there was probably some question as to whether they were important enough to be put in the canon. The book of Revelation was accepted late for a couple of reasons. The book of Revelation has some very strange Greek grammar in it. If you read it in Greek, it's unlike any other writing in Greek that you will ever see. It's perfectly understandable, but it's written in kind of an odd way, and, and it just has to do with grammar and you know, matching cases and things like that that don't really come through in an English translation. In addition to that, the book of Revelation teaches that there will be a future earthly millennial reign of Christ. And there were some people who didn't think that that was true. So they said, well, it teaches some theology that we don't agree with, and it seems to be written in a way that's very different than the other books written by John. I mean, John wrote John's Gospel, he wrote 1 John, he wrote 2 and 3 John. So they said, eh, maybe this really isn't a writing from John. Maybe it isn't really a writing from God. But people pondered it, and they read it, and they thought it through, and the conclusion was that it was inspired, and I think they were right. Okay, third point. No book was ever declared canonical and then later removed from the canon. Okay, some books were slow to get in, but nothing ever got in and then was kicked out. Okay, now, the Old Testament Apocrypha. These are books that are currently part of the Roman Catholic canon. If you get a Roman Catholic Bible... It's got 11 or 12 books that we don't have in our Bibles. They were never declared to be inspired or part of the canon before the Reformation in the 1500s. Okay? We'll talk about where they came from in a little while. But they were not even on the charts in the time of the early church. They weren't even on the charts 1,000 or 1,400 years after the early church. Okay, now let's talk about the Apocrypha and then there's this other group called the Pseudepigrapha. The word is hard to say. The term Pseudepigrapha, just as a general term, it means books written by a Pseudepigrapher. Duh. <laughs> well, I, I, what I had written originally was a Pseudepigrapha means books written by an imposter. But that sounds kind of nasty. Actually, it is kind of nasty. A pseudepigrapher is someone who pretends to be someone he isn't. Okay? Now, for example, there's a book called The Testament of Abraham. It supposedly is a record written by Abraham about his life and some of the things he did and saw, but we know it wasn't written by Abraham. Now, you will run into people who will claim that pseudonymous writings, writings that pretend to be written by somebody that they really weren't written by. They would, many scholars today will claim that these 
were widely accepted by the Jews and that nobody really cared. But there really isn't any evidence for this claim. Okay? It is true that there were pseudepigraphal writings out there and people read them, but people knew they were pseudepigraphal and they did not view them on the same level as inspired scripture at all. Okay, nextly, we have the apocryphal books. Is this awfully dry? This is kind of dry, isn't it? No? Well, we're going to get through it and we're going to have some fun in a little while, I promise. Okay. The word apocrypha means hidden books. It refers to books that were accepted by some, but not by everybody. Now, I don't. none of the apocryphal books was ever considered to be canonical, but some of them were considered to be valuable. Now, unfortunately, these terms are not used consistently. You can use the term pseudepigrapha as a general term for any book that happens to be pseudepigraphal, or you can use it for a specific book, set of books. And there are the Old Testament pseudepigrapha and the New Testament pseudepigrapha. The Old Testament pseudepigrapha are pseudepigraphal books written in the time of the Old Testament, basically before the time of Christ. And the New Testament pseudepigrapha are pseudepigraphal books from after the time of Christ. Now, some of the, when we use the term apocrypha with reference to the Roman Catholic Bible, we're speaking of particular books, and some of those books are pseudepigraphal, but we don't call them pseudepigrapha, at least in this context. Okay? Very confusing. All right. The apocrypha in the Roman Catholic Bible are 11 books that were never accepted into the ancient canon, but which the Roman Catholic Church declared to be deuterocanonical at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. You know the book Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy means second law in Latin. It's the second giving of the law to the people of Israel by Moses. Well, deuterocanonical means the second canon. It's sort of like the Roman Catholic Church said, oh, by the way, we missed these books for the last 1,500 years, but they too are from the mind of God. Okay? Now, if that strikes you as being disingenuous, it should. All right? The reason these books were added to the Roman Catholic canon is that the Reformers disputed certain doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And they could not find support for those doctrines and practices in the canonical books of scripture. So they looked around and they found these other books and they said, gee, if we include those, we can find some support for these doctrines. So they added them to their Bibles and declared them to be part of the second canon. Okay? We Protestants do not recognize them either as can canonical or inspired. Obviously, if they're not inspired, they can't be canonical. Now, just for kicks, this is a list of the books. And I won't read them all, but let me point out a couple of them to you. The, the book called Sirach or Ecclesiasticus is a very interesting book. If you read it, you will find it spiritually uplifting. It has a lot of wisdom in it. 
Okay? I would actually recommend that you read it. And when you read it, don't treat it like it's scripture. It's not. But it's a very uplifting spiritual book written by apparently a godly Jew. Okay? First and Second Maccabees are two books that have a lot of accurate history in them and they tell us about the time of the Maccabees and the events surrounding uh, the desecration of the Jewish temple around 160 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes, all the things that led to the creation of the holiday that we call Hanukkah today. Okay, There's a lot of interesting history in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. The rest of them are not very exciting. But if you get a Roman Catholic Bible and you want to look at some interesting stuff, there's nothing wrong with reading this stuff. Just remember, it's not the Word of God. And it'll be pretty obvious to you that it's not. Okay? But you, you may find it interesting to read these things. Okay, now, here's a big question. A very important question. Is the canon closed? Bill N., did you have a question? I don't mind if you ask. Don't be shy. Okay. Okay. All right. Is the canon closed? In other words, is there any possibility that some additional inspired canonical books will come along? All right. Somebody said no. I agree, but let's think this through. Okay. I think several considerations argue that the canon is closed and that we neither, please note this, we neither need nor expect any further scripture to be supplied to us by God. Okay, the first point. Jesus is the final and full revelation of the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that very clearly. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Okay? In that sense, we don't need any more revelation of the person of God. Okay, secondly, the apostles are all dead. And only they were qualified to recount and interpret the life and the ministry of Christ. That really was what their job was, wasn't it? In a very real sense, the New Testament is the record of the life of Christ and the interpretation of its significance by those who were present and saw him live and were under his teaching and saw him die and saw him rise from the dead. Okay, Those people aren't around anymore. And I don't think up in heaven they're going to write something and send it to us by telegram. You know, they've, they've given us what we need, and there's nobody like them who could add to it. Okay? 1 Timothy 3.16, we've looked at that. Actually, that should be 3.16 to 17. It says, All Scripture is inspired and provides what we need that the man of God may be fully equipped for every ministry. 2 Peter 1.3 says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Okay? If you put those together and you allow for the idea that what they're talking about is the existing collection of the scriptures that we have, then there's nothing else we need. Let, let me quote that one to you directly from 2 Peter. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. There is nothing that we need that we don't already have. Now, moving beyond the question of Scripture, what's the problem? Why do we have difficulty walking with the Lord and living in the world? It's because we often don't use what we've already got. Now, when Peter says you've got everything you need, I think he's talking about Scripture. I think he's talking about uh, relationship with God, the high priestly ministry of Christ, the fellowship of believers, the indwelling Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, the privilege of prayer, a whole lot of things. But I think it certainly includes written scripture. So, we have what we need. Now, here's an interesting one. I can't find this in scripture. But I think it is very reasonable to expect that God would have providentially protected Scripture and made sure that it got into the hands of the church. Now, if that is true, that would suggest that there are no lost books that will suddenly show up. If that were true, that would mean that we'd gone 2,000 years with some piece of his word missing. Andrew? It might be kind of over. We know that you know, if we believe that Scripture is inspired and that it's all true, mm-hmm. God says specifically that we have everything we need. And because right. of that promise, because we know that's true, and because mm-hmm. we don't take things out of context, then we could know that he hasn't left out anything that we would actually need at least. Right. Because he would be lying then if we'd only have one book of Scripture that said that, and we didn't have the other 65. Yeah. Oh, I think that's true. This, In other words, what you're saying, Andrew, is that this is a sensible conclusion from the one that goes before it, right? If we have everything we need, then there's reason to believe that God made sure that we that nothing was lost in the process. Okay? Now here's a big one. The uniqueness of Christ as the way of salvation. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or Acts 4.12. Um, somebody quote that for me. Uh, there's salvation in none other... For there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. I think that's it. Okay? If Christ is the only way of salvation, then why would we need any other information? It just doesn't make sense, right? Finally, some people would take that curse in the end of Revelation 22 where it says if anyone adds to this book then the curses will be added to him or if anyone takes away from this book then I will take away something from him. Some people take that as referring to the entire Bible. That's a little harder to argue but it may be true. Some people take 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it talks about when the perfect comes and they would take that as a reference to the completion of the canon. I'm not sure that that's really what it refers to, but some people will cite these things as evidence for the closing of the canon. But I think if you put all those things together, you've got a pretty strong argument that God has provided us with everything we need, and therefore there's no reason to expect anything else. 
Okay. Any questions? Would that First Corinthians 13 uh, be held by that view be held by like a cessationist? Yeah, it's common. Cessationist would would often a cessationist is a person who says that certain spiritual gifts like tongues and and prophecy and miracles are no longer being given by God. They would often go to 1 Corinthians 13 to argue that, and they would say that the completion of the canon removes any necessity for God to give such gifts. Okay, I don't personally think that that's what 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching, although I am a mild cessationist. But And I don't want to get too far off on that, but you're right. That's The two arguments go together. They do. Gary? Phoenix? Question? Okay. Yes? It, it always amazes me, though, how they, how God preserved the writings over all the years, even through the exile. Mm-hmm. Where did they go? I mean, how did... How did they well, I, I think what happened was that as the individual books were written, and this, this is really fascinating when you think about it, and you think about the cost of producing books in the ancient world. Everything had to be copied by hand. There were a limited number of people who were capable of it. Writing materials were extraordinarily expensive. Um, So when people would copy a book, it was a big undertaking, and it showed how much they valued it. Now, I think the Jews, you know, in in the time before Christ, would make copies and they, they would stash them in different places because they did not want to lose these things. They did consider it to be the, the word of God and they considered it to be extraordinarily important. The fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls were hidden where they were is evidence of how important people thought these things were. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament period, technology had improved a lot. There were more people who were literate and there were more people who could copy the New Testament letters. Now, particularly the letters of Paul, most of them were fairly short, so it would be fairly common for people to make copies. Now, it's, it was nothing like in our churches today. Typically, a church might have one copy of most of the books you know, of the New Testament or something like that, but it was possible for an educated person to sit down and copy it and make another copy. But yes, there were efforts at many times to destroy the scriptures. You know, um, it happened in Rome. There's an edict that went out that kicked all the Jews out of the Rome, out of Rome, and said if you find any copies of the scriptures, burn them. But the fact that people valued them so highly and made the effort both to copy them and in many cases hide them was one of the things that God used to preserve it. It, it really is quite amazing. Um, you know, there, there are other ancient books like the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, we have, I don't remember the exact numbers, but we have seven or eight copies of that, you know, going back a couple thousand years. We have thousands of manuscripts from the New Testament. So you can, you, you can tell that there were a lot of people who valued Scripture and made efforts to preserve it. And God used those efforts. Now let's talk about some implications of the closing of the canon. Okay, If the canon is closed, 
and we can reject without worry the claims of groups like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Muslims without fear of losing something God might be offering. Okay? Any holy writing that comes along after the time of the writing of Scripture or for that matter before it, okay? those things are not inspired. Now, Scripture is very exclusive, isn't it? Scripture says there is only one God and he has offered only one way to know him and you either get on the boat the way he says or you're not on the boat at all. Thank you very much. Okay? When Muhammad came along 600-some years after the time of Christ with his writings and his supposed revelation, there was no need for anybody to get excited. First of all, the stuff that he revealed wasn't consistent with Scripture, and second of all, the canon was complete. When Joseph Smith came along in the 1800s and said, God gave me additional revelation, the people who knew the Scriptures well said, no, he didn't, and they paid no attention. Now, some people did pay attention, but it was because they didn't understand the closing of the canon. Okay, now, another implication. If the canon is closed, then the claims of some Christians that God is providing additional revelation are seen to be highly suspect. Now, notice I didn't say they can be categorically denied. They are simply wrong if they insist that their revelations are necessary. Now, let's think about this. I've had people come up to me in the Philippines and say, God spoke to me in a dream last night and this is what he wants you to do. And they expected me to believe them and do it. And my answer to them, very politely, is always to say, if God wants me to know that, he will tell me himself. Now, I won't say that God can never speak to anybody. And if, you know, if God speaks to one of you and he says, I want you to go be a missionary in the Sudan, and if you believe it's God and you follow that, I don't have a problem with it. But if God comes to you with a revelation and he says, this revelation is for the church, and if the church doesn't have it, they're going to be off course, that's where I draw the line. Okay? Because God has already provided us everything we need. So anybody who says they've got necessary revelation, I'm simply not going to listen to. Gary? Are you saying necessary to add to the canon? Well, just necessary. I mean, for example, how about these people who say they've been to heaven and back? And they, you know, they go on tour and they say, I've got a message from God and the church needs to hear this. Okay? Well, I'm sorry, but the church doesn't need to hear it. Um, first of all, I'm very skeptical that what they experienced was a real trip to heaven and back. But again, if scripture is complete, if God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, we don't need any additional information. We just need to take seriously what we've got and obey it and respond to it and live by it. Um, you know, this, this, this does 
raise questions about some charismatic behavior, but not necessarily all. And I'm not trying to be too harsh here. But I, I really draw the line when somebody says, I've heard something from God and you have to hear it or the church has to hear it. That's where my ears close up. Okay, if the canon is closed, we should be content and well satisfied to study, understand, and obey what's been revealed to us in Scripture. And we've looked at all these passages already. Okay, the bottom line. Praise God. We have his complete prophetic word made more sure in the words of Peter in 2 Peter as our possession forever. We've got what we need. Okay. That's it for the canon. We're right on time. Let's take a break until quarter of eight, and then we will continue. And in our next hour, it's not going to be me lecturing. It's going to be you guys digging and us having some fun together, Lord willing. Okay.